I love our church. I love each one of you. It's such a privilege to be a part of this community. We are starting a brand new series, and we've entitled it Family Values, Living This Jesus-Centered Life. And we're going to spend a good deal of the summer talking about the values of, uh, of our church, of the church. And when I was thinking about this topic about values and family values, um, I instantly thought about my family growing up and our values. Every family has values. Every family has um, things that kind of are distinctive about that family. If you kind of remember going over to your friend's house as a kid and you would say, wow, man, this family is different than my family. Maybe there's things about it that you just really liked and you wanted to go live with them sometimes, right? Like, man, they just eat really good over there. Like their mom really knows how to cook and, you know, mom, I don't know, but, but I mean, I just remember like as a kid, you'd go to other kids' families and you're like, wow, they're really cool. And you kind of forget that your family's really cool too, right? But it's something new, it's something cool, and it kind of draws you. And every family kind of has these distinctives. When I think back at my family growing up, one of the things that we really valued now that I look back, I can realize this, is that we really valued being close to each other, close relationships. My mom was uh, just really, really committed that my brothers and sisters and I, we love each other. She, had a, uh, she came from a broken home. I think she really was r- really kind of bringing some of that even into our family. Like, we are going to be close. Like, my, fam- my parents, according to her, you know, they split up. But our family, we're going to be tight. And, and she really did that. In fact, I learned how to love a woman by watching my dad love my mom. He was just an incredible husband. He is. And I'm not going to be, be preaching on Father's Day. And so he was in the first service and I had to just tell him, like, I learned how to love Michelle and I hope to love my wife as just even half as much as he's loved my mom over, over their marriage. And, and so I learned that growing up. That's part of the family values is loving each other well and being committed to each other. Whenever there was conflict, uh, my mom would not let us just kind of sweep it under the rug. We were going to talk it out. And if my brother was in the room or my sister, she would, they would testify to this. We are not going to just ignore problems. We are going to talk these things through. Um, but there was something else about, as I was looking back on my childhood and thinking about it, um, we really valued hard work. Um, of course, when you're a kid, you don't really know any different. But both of my parents are very entrepreneurial. Uh, my mom started Lakeview Christian Academy. My dad started a construction company. Um, but even before that, we, I mean, hard work and working together was just part of our culture. Uh, we would throw newspapers in, in the mornings. Uh, my mom was the circulation manager for Henderson Home News, which I don't even know if it exists anymore. But on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the, the newspaper went out. And a part of our family rhythm was on Monday nights, we're grabbing the newspapers from down at the print shop down in town Vegas, and we're bringing them into Henderson. And then Tuesday morning, we're throwing the newspapers, same thing on Wednesday and Thursday. And so that was just part of growing up. Um, but sometimes you're, you're kind of like your family culture leads you into things when you look back and you just laugh, right? Like, I cannot believe that happened, right? So I want to tell you a quick story. Um, my mom and dad, we were all blue collar workers, just, you know, great just kind of tight-knit family, uh, not well off by any means. And so um, uh, does anyone remember the, the Cabbage Patch doll craze of the 80s? Does anyone remember that, okay? So I'm obviously, I'm little, right? And um, if you don't know about what a Cabbage Patch doll was, there's a picture. These Cabbage Patch dolls came out and they were way overpriced. I mean, they were way out of reach for us, right? But my mom's sister over in Houston figured out the Cabbage Patch dupe. 
And she started making these and selling them. This is before you could do it on Etsy or anything like that. So she's like creating these Cabbage Patch dupes. And she's like, Sue, like you guys could do this in Henderson, right? I have the pattern, right? And so she literally sent my mom. So here's what, so what do you get when you get an entrepreneur who's a seamstress, right? You get an underground Cabbage Patch manufacturing thing going on, right? Now, here's the hilarious part. This is so bad. Okay, so my, my, my dad would just go along with whatever new thing my mom is doing, right? So my mom and my grandma, they, they had this little sweatshop. They made all these little Cabbage Patch dolls. They had them, they got stuffing and they stuffed them. I remember this. I'm a little kid. I remember them doing this. And they're all excited. They just, they just know for sure these things are going to sell like hotcakes. And so they convinced my dad to get the station wagon, because of course, that's what you're driving in the 80s is a station wagon, to take it and to park it at the far end of the Kmart parking lot. Kmart was kind of a knockoff of Walmart. Um, so at the end of the Kmart parking lot, my dad is there. This big construction worker guy is there, and he's got these dolls propped up all over the station wagon, okay? Now, here's the crazy, funny, I can't believe this happened part of the story. He's gone. He goes, I think it's Friday night. You know, what are you going to do with your paycheck? I don't know. Let's buy some cabbage patch dolls. Okay. So that's the idea. This is Henderson, like in the 80s. So they're there. And he comes back way earlier than expected. So my grandma, who's crazy, and my mom, um, <laughs> they're just like, oh my gosh, Sam, you sold out that quick? He does not have the look on his face of someone who just sold an armload of Cabbage Patch dolls. No, his face is disgust. Why is his face disgusted? Because he was busted by the Henderson PD for illegally selling Cabbage Patch dolls on the corner of the Kmart parking lot. He has Cabbage Patch dolls stuffed on his jacket and coat, bringing them all in. And he said, now here's the part that this little Brad Blakely never forgets in my whole life is the sound of my grandpa. Now, if you don't know my grandpa, he's passed away. My grandpa was the most dignified, proper man that you ever met. He, he would ever, whenever he left the house, he looked like a million bucks. He was just very dignified and proper, okay? My grandma is crazy. I told you that already, right? So when my grandpa hears that our family has just been busted for selling cabbage patch, he is so upset. And I'll never forget this. He says, Barbara, because <laughs> now he believes that we have soiled the Blakely and Horner name in Henderson forever. He cannot show his face at work because he knows everyone will link the cabbage patch doll fiasco to him. And so he is so disgusted. He's like, Barbara, I told you we should not be selling cabbage patch dolls. It is hilarious. Needless to say, many underprivileged kids got Cabbage Patch dolls later that year because we couldn't sell them. There was no Etsy to sell them. Oh, I love those memories, you know. It's just one of those things, just laugh. I don't know if you have those from your childhood, things, crazy things your family tried or did. I was thinking about Michelle and I as, as obviously when we got married, we took these two family cultures that we came from and we joined. And now we have our own family culture. And I was thinking about like the kind of culture our kids will think about when they're older, you know, like what will they remember? Um, what will they laugh about? Or what will they just shake their head about, right? Um, because the truth is every family has a culture. And these are things that you value. These are things that are important to you. Um, and when I was thinking about the church's culture, because that's what the church really is. It's a family. It's a spiritual family. Um, and when I was thinking about the early church, 
What was their culture like? What would it have been like to be a part of that movement? If you've been at our church at any length of time and, and heard me speak, you know how much I love history. I love thinking deeply about what it would have been like to be there. I love to think about like, what it would it have been like to hear Jesus speak and to be drawn by his teaching, to be just wowed by his miracles, but, but forever changed and transformed by his love. And I just, I, I, I think when I read through the Gospels and the book of Acts, I, I always try to imagine, like, what would it have really been like to be one of those disciples? And when I was thinking about this, this sermon series on family values, and I was thinking about this family of God that formed in, in Jerusalem right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Like, what was that family like? And I want to just kind of talk a little bit about, just to kind of set up the series, about what values are and, and how, they, how they function. You know, I, I can't see a value. But what I see is a behavior. And a behavior is something that's there because of a value, right? So if I see a bunch of people, you know, working hard or, or spending time together, I can see that, oh, they value hard work or they value maybe um, uh, being careful with their finances. They value uh, relationships. They value each other. And so I have a little graph here, and I want to just kind of explain this, that values are what drives behavior. So hit that next one for me. And then behaviors, after a while, they, they produce cultures. So this is kind of what happens in any kind of family or any kind of situation is, is the values. It could be a, a job, an organization. They have values. And because of those values, there are certain behaviors that happen. And then because of those behaviors, this is the culture. This is how it is. So if you were in the Blakely family in the 80s, right, um, the value would be we're hanging together. Like, like I told you a couple of weeks ago, my mom even homeschooled us, right? So we're literally together a lot. And, and because of that value, like we're not going to just ignore conflict. We care about these relationships. And pretty soon it's just the culture. And so my kids have the wonderful benefit of, hey, that's just how dad was raised. And so that's how dad is, you know? And so this is really interesting in, in, in the early church because the same kind of thing happens when you really dive into the culture and the values, the behaviors of the early church. So I want to look at these behaviors. I want to look at something that we see in the early church. And I want to dive into the book of Acts because it's right here in the book of Acts you see the behaviors of the early church. And so we're going to ask a question. If we were just a fly on the wall, if we were just kind of observing this whole thing and we were to kind of join the early church movement, what would it have been like to be in that church? What would it have been like to be in Jerusalem, to have Pastor Peter and Pastor John? Man, wouldn't that be crazy? Man, that'd be awesome, right? And to, and to, and to be walking with these disciples, so let's look at it. This is in Acts chapter one, look in verse four. If you have your Bible, we're gonna be in the book of Acts, mostly in the first chapter. And I wanna kind of set, set this story up for you. So Jesus is with the disciples. He's about to ascend to heaven. And notice what he says. And this is in verse four. He says, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is a, the last kind of teaching of Jesus. He's already died on the cross. He's already risen from the dead. He spent 40 days, according to Luke, with, 
with convincing proofs that he was alive. Like he's eating with them. He's hanging out with them. And now he's about to leave them. And he says, I, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. They're all Galileans. They don't live permanently in Jerusalem. So it would be naturally for them to go back up to Galilee. And he says, don't, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. And I want you to wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. Well, they naturally are asking like, is, is now the time? Are you going to establish your kingdom? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that my father has set by his own authority. I want you to just wait. And at that moment, it, it, he says these powerful words in verse eight, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from his sight, from their sight. So can you imagine that? Like his final words is for them to wait for this powerful, just envelopment of the Holy Spirit, that they would be equipped to testify to the entire world. And guys, today we are in the uttermost part of the earth comparatively from where Jerusalem is. We are in the uttermost. I mean, that, that commission that we read about happened. Like these disciples went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and we today are in the long line of heritage that traces all the way back to, to, to that message. And so Jesus is ascending to his father and the, the, the text tells us that everyone just like stares up to heaven, like we all would, right? And then all of a sudden, like these two men appear dressed in white and they say, hey, why are you staring? The same Jesus is going to return. So I want you to see what happens next. This is the powerful moment. He's told them to wait. He's been with them for 40 days. And so what do they do? Well, they wait. They go back to Jerusalem just like he says, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, about a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, verse 13, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. But no Judas Iscariot, right? He's, he's taking his own life. But verse 14 is really interesting. They're gathered, they're waiting. Jesus is gone. It's like, now what do we do, right? Here's what they do, verse 14. They all join together constantly, let's all say it, in prayer. That's what they do. These disciples kind of reflexively just start praying. It's like, hey, what, what do you, you want to do? I, I don't know. Let's, why don't we pray? I mean, we saw Jesus do that a lot, right? Like, let's do that. So they start to pray. And then the text tells us along with the women and Mary, the mother, of Jesus, uh, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And in those days, in verse 15, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering of about, let's all say it, 120. So this is an interesting thing. This group of disciples is about 120 people and they're just kind of gathering and they're praying. Guys, I want to I really emphasize this. They prayed together. They prayed together, right? Again, if you joined the Blakely family in the 1980s, you're probably going to fold newspapers because that's what we do, right? That was our culture, right? Because we're throwing newspapers, right? Guys, if you joined the early church, 
you would notice this. These guys pray together a lot. They pray together a lot. Guys, I want you just to kind of think about that. Every time they gather, they're just praying. Earlier this year, we did a whole series on prayer. Remember that? We talked all about really praying before the Lord. We talked through mostly focusing on you as an individual and learning how to pray from Jesus and modeling your prayer life after him. We talked about really just getting naked before the Lord. Like, God, I'm just not going to hide anymore. We talked all about just being fervent in prayers and going on prayer walks. But this sermon today is a little different. It's not about you and Jesus. This is about the corporate church praying together. This is about the disciples saying, we need each other when we pray. And so that's what they do. They start to just, they start to just pray together. Look at chapter 2, verse 42, where we have kind of a summary of the culture. Look what he says. This is Luke kind of summarizing the early church. This is what it was like in those early days. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread, and here it is, say it with me, and to what? Prayer. I mean, again, that's what it was like. These guys, they just prayed together. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So it's like, if you were to hang out with this group of Christians, the earliest church, when Pastor Peter and Pastor John and all the rest are leading this church, you, you would notice, man, they prayed a lot. In chapter 4, Peter and John, they, they get into trouble with the chief priests and the leaders of Jerusalem. And they get thrown into prison. And they get kind of like, you know, kind of you're scolded. And, and, and there, there wasn't a serious threat of, of, their, of death there because the chief priests couldn't execute someone on their own authority. But they were thrown in prison. They were told not to preach in Jesus' name. But I want to show you what the church does. This is Acts 4, uh, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. They reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Look at this. When they heard it, let's all read it. They raised their voices together in what? In prayer. So I, I want, again, let's try to really imagine being there. Peter and John are gone, right? They're in prison. We're all kind of gathering and all of a sudden they show up. I'm like, hey, man, wow, look, you guys are out. Like, tell us what happened, right? And they, they start to just kind of like, again, reflexively, they just start praying. And I love this. You can read this for your own self later. Uh, Peter starts to just preach to the t church there. He starts to quote Psalms. He starts to quote about how the heathen can rage and people can try to fight against what God's doing, but, but God's purposes are not going to be thwarted. And he starts to have this like powerful moment of scripture, kind of scripture and prayer all mixed together. And then at the verse 31, it says this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Guys, I don't know about you, but that sounds like the kind of church service I want to go to. The kind of place where people come out of prison for being bold, and then we, we, we like rejoice about how God just delivers them, and then one of them starts to preach again, and then we all say, man, let's just pray in response to that. And because of that, the whole place starts to shake. And then everyone gets filled with the spirit and everyone starts being bold. Like, guys, that's the kind of culture the early church enjoyed. Look at chapter 8, Acts chapter 8. There's been some preaching in the neighboring area of Samaria where Jesus told them to go, remember? And, and, and there was a concern there because this, the people of Samaria 
they didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they trusted in Jesus. So Peter goes up there. Look what happens. When the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, what did they do? They prayed. And they prayed for, for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. You see this in Acts chapter 12. In Acts 12, the situation is a little more intense. It's not, it's not the chief priests that have imprisoned the apostles. It's now King Agrippa. And King Agrippa could execute someone. In fact, King Agrippa executed James, the brother of John. And now Peter was in prison. Guys, I want you to catch this. This is, this is a serious moment for the life of the church. Peter is the leader of the church. And he's in prison. And he's next on the list to be executed. King Agrippa is waiting to execute Peter until Passover is over because he knows the Jews, it, they, they kind of like that. They, they, they got excited when, when he killed James and they thought, well, if he wants to be popular with the Jews, killing Peter would even do, do more. And so look what happens. Look what the church does. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church, let's all say it, was earnestly praying to God for him. I think this is so powerful. The church says, hey, what do we do? I mean, what do we got? We're going to pray. And so the church gathers together and they start praying. It's like, God, we need Peter. Please don't let King Agrippa kill him. Like, like what happened to James, like, God, we need Peter. And I could just imagine that that prayer service was not some like kind of half people fall asleep kind of service. Like, no, this is everyone engaged in prayer. Are you with me, church? This is the kind of church service where things start to move and buildings start to shake. It's the kind of church service where God hears, hey, those people are serious and I'm ready to respond when I see people earnestly praying. This is in Acts 4 or Acts 12. And so they're earnestly praying. And so there's this crazy cool story about how this angel like takes Peter out of the prison and all this. And so Peter's now out of the prison, verse 12. When it, this had dawned on him that he was actually free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who also called, was, was called Mark, where many of the people had gathered and were praying. This is in the wee hours of the night. This is late at night. And, and Peter's like walking through the streets and he's like coming up to this house and this house is full of people praying. Can you guys imagine it? I want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine a little house in first century, you know, Palestine, and they're all, there's all these people, and, they're, and you just hear it, you know, and they're all just praying out to the Lord together. Man, guys, is there something about your spirit that says, I want to be there? Like, there's something about being around people who want to pray. Like, do you know someone like that, that they just, they're a praying presence? Like, whenever they're in the room, they just, they just want to pray. Like whenever you talk to them or you're with them and you talk about something you're going through, they just, they're the kind of person that says, well, let's pray. Like, let's pray about that right now, right? Like, and they just grab your hands and they just, they just pray. And there's something about that person that if you're a follower of Jesus, you just are drawn to them. You're just like, yes, yes, let's pray. That's a good idea. Like, guys, I want to be the kind of guy that my go-to is prayer. Like, it's just the kind of thing we do, right? When problems are happening, we, we just pray. It's like, of course. And so Peter is in that house and he's praying. Well, eventually they let him in. You could read the story about that. So, all right, look at chapter 13. Last one real quick. This is powerful. 
It says, while they were worshiping the Lord, this is the church at Antioch, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after they fasted and prayed, the place and placed their hands on them, they sent them off. Guys, how cool is that? The first missionary journey of Paul that starts the movement of all those churches around the Mediterranean basin was started because a group of Christians are gathering and praying. Guys, can I tell you something? Powerful things happen when believers gather and pray. Guys, this is not rocket science, right? This is in scripture. This is what we see over and over and over. When people decide, look, I am ready to pray. I'm ready to see my brothers and sisters lock arms. I'm ready for us to start like marching towards heaven and asking heaven to come down to earth. Like that's the kind of prayers we see in the book of Acts. So I want to ask you a really critical question. When is the last time you really prayed with somebody? When is the last time you really experienced somebody, a brother, a sister, holding your hands and crying out with God, to God for you or with you? When is the last time you just experienced this heaven-shaking kind of prayer, earth-shaking kind of prayer with some group of people? You know, I, I, I got to tell you this. One of the things that I'll not forget about this year of ministry together, there, there were a couple of moments with our staff where we had something planned and just deep, intimate prayer broke out. There was a, there was, we have this uh, cohort we're doing where I'm taking a group of people through this, this theology class so they can be ordained to be pastors. And I'm so excited about this. Later in the fall, we're going to ordain uh, people to be pastors. I'm excited. So, we had this group meeting planned. And of course, I'm the teacher, so I'm all ready. It's like, okay, guys, let's go. Let's, I got to keep the thing going, right? And I can be very task-oriented. I don't know what happened. We opened in prayer, and we just prayed. And guys, it was like heaven was kissing earth in that room. We just prayed. And each one of the hearts of the people in that room just cried out to the Lord, and it was just like time was standing still. I mean, there was no dry eyes. We were weeping before the Lord. We were praying. We were crying out for each other. We were crying out to the Lord. It was this beautiful, beautiful moment. In fact, there was, I was so just touched by it. I felt, man, if there was just any way every single person in our church could have been in that room to experience that moment, I just have to believe it would have been super formative in their walk with Jesus. Guys, can I say this to you? There is a gift. There's a gift available to every one of us, Jesus followers. It's this gift of praying fervently with your brothers and sisters. And we're missing that, church. We are not regularly receiving this opportunity of praying with people. I mean, really praying with people. Having this like heart in heart connection. Like, man, bringing our brothers and sisters to the Lord together. When is the last time you've really experienced that? You know, I was thinking about this too, and uh, this was right before Easter, and we were getting ready for the Easter meeting that we were kind of planning, Good Friday and Easter. And, and another time this happened where it was just like, we started praying and praying and praying and praying. And, and you know, all the planning we were supposed to be doing, we weren't doing, we were praying. And what happened, which is amazing, which you, you could expect, is as soon as we were done, the plans for Easter just fell right into place. It was almost like God says, look, if you'll just seek my face, 
I'll open up the windows of heaven. If you'll just pray, all the planning that you need to do will happen. But just prioritize prayer and let me do the planning. Can I get an amen to that, right? Let's stop thinking that our wisdom is what we need. And let's just gather and let's ask God to just download from heaven what we, what we need for our plans. When people pray, God moves. So I, I just, I want us to think about that. Like, what does this show us? When you read the book of Acts, and so, you know, you study what it's, what it's saying about these early church believers, and that every time they're gathering, they're praying. Every time they meet, they pray. Every time there's a problem, they pray. Every time there's a, a decision, they pray. Like, here's my question. What does that behavior, what does that behavior reveal about their values? So what does it say about somebody who prays all the time? What does it say about a church who prays all the time? What does it say about, about a group of people who say, you know what? That priority here is prayer. You know what I think it says? I think it says that that church, this group of people that we read about, they valued the presence of God. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is a Prayer is a premium on the presence of God. Prayer says, you know what? What's the most important thing for us right now is for us to be into the presence of the Lord. What's so important for us right now is that we pray until we experience the presence of God in our midst. And I have a theory on why the church prayed the way they did. I can't prove this, but I think one of the reasons we see this kind of instinctive prayer happening is because I think these guys really missed Jesus. I think they really did. I think they missed him. I mean, heck, if I, if I walked with Jesus like they did for three years and he was gone, I'd miss him too, terribly. I'd think about him all the time. I'd want him just, I want to hear his laugh one more time. I'd want to hear one more parable. I'd want to see one more miracle. Or I just want to be, I would just want him just to be loving me one more time. And guys, can I tell you something? That's what happens when a group of people pray. I can't prove this to you. I can just tell you by experience. When you really enter into prayer with a group of your brothers and sisters, can I tell you, it's like Jesus opens the door and comes right on in. There is something about a group of people fervently seeking God together that I can't explain this. I really can't like, you know, prove this empirically to you, but I can just tell you, I feel the the palpable presence of Jesus in a room when we really get to that point in prayer. Didn't he say somewhere where two or three are gathered? There I am in the, didn't he say that somewhere, right? There, there, is, there is something about people who's like, and this is not the whole oh, Lord, let's pray before we eat. You know, Lord, thank you for this food. I'm not talking about that kind of like perfunctory prayer. I'm talking about God, we aren't moving until we all come face to face with the Holy Spirit of God in this place. God, we need you because this enemy is too big and too ugly. He's, he's too tall. The storm is too big, whatever. Like, Lord, we are not leaving until you come, until you knock down the giant that's in front of us. Guys, I, I was thinking about this. Yes, hallelujah. I was thinking about this this year or this week when I was thinking about my childhood. Um, I don't know how many of you guys were in Henderson when this happened, but in 1988, one of the uh, chemical plants exploded. Uh, in Henderson, right? Uh, they were making rocket fuel, which is an amazing thing to produce in an urban setting, right? Let's just make rocket fuel here, you know? Anyway, so they were, and Pepcon exploded. And I remember this, because I was, I think, 12 years old when Pepcon exploded. 
uh, I was at home. We were with my mom, uh, and we were having lunch. And all of a sudden, the front door explodes. We run outside. We see the mushroom cloud because there's a clear view. And my mom, her first instinct, we all, she grabs us as kids. And we don't run into the garage or anywhere. We run into the living room. And she says, we are praying. And I'll, I'll never forget this because we, we, we read the King James Bible back in those days. And so she started using some King James language, right? And her first word is, I beseech you, Lord, right? It was like, whoa, my mom is serious. We're beseeching today, right? And I was like, dang. Uh, so I'm like, whoa. But I, I'll tell you what, guys, I'll never forget that when the bomb exploded, my mom is praying. Come on. When the bomb is exploding in your life, are you praying? Come on. Like, are you grabbing people and saying, we are going to do some beseeching of our Lord because that is too scary. This life is too messy. This world is too crazy. God, you need to do something and I need to find people who will do it with me. That's what a church does. Guys, that's what a praying church does. It's a group of family members who are committed to the king who say, man, if you want to pray, you got the guy that'll pray with you. I'm in it forever with you. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. Let's start praying to King Jesus. Come on. Amen. Let's go. So I got to wrap this sermon up. Okay, here we go. So what does it say about a church who prays a lot? Here's what I think it says. It says that group of people, they know they need God. And not only do they need God, they want God. Guys, this is the, this is the turn. Let me turn this right now for you. Guys, we need to stop only praying when we need God. Guys, we need to pray because we want him. Guys, we, we need to pray because we love him, because we miss him, because when he's not present, we miss his absence. Guys, we need to pray not for his power, but for his presence. Because guys, when his, when his presence is in the room, his power comes automatically. But I'm not praying for his power. I just want his presence because I know when I have his presence, I get everything else I need. A, a group of people who pray regularly together, they demonstrate that they really want God. Number two, I think when that group of people pray together regularly, they demonstrate they know they need his wisdom. That they don't have enough wisdom. See, guys, there's a temptation to walk according to your own understanding, right? There's a temptation to walk according to your own wisdom. Can I tell you, that's the worst way to live your life. You will run yourself right into the pit, right into the ditch, right into the, right into the back into the addiction or right back into the, into the bad relationship. Guys, when you make decisions on your own understanding, like you are driving the truck off the cliff. Are you with me? Like someone who prays regularly, who says, God, I need your wisdom. Can you pray with me? You're telling God, hey, I'm the kind of person that wants you to be driving the truck. I need your wisdom. Number three, I think it says that you are depending on God to do what God can do. That you're not going to depend on your own resources. And can I just speak as a, as a pastor right now? Guys, I'm going to tell you, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. Like, I don't know. I, 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 I'm just Brad. I'm 46, and I'm Brad Blakely. And leading a church is way over my pay grade. Can I just be, can I be honest with you guys? And, and guys, bringing the good news of Jesus to Henderson is way over my pay grade. Like, I don't know how to do that, right? But I know someone who does. And his name is Jesus. And I believe if we get a group of people who will pray together, guys, we will see 
the giants fall. We will see the gospel come. We will see Henderson saved. We will see the lost found. Come on, I'm gonna start really preaching right now. We will see the people in the prison set free. We will see those in darkness set out into the light. We will see those people who are lost be brought into the kingdom of light forever and ever because Jesus has the keys and he's given them to us. And the question is, are we gonna use it? I wanna point out something. Did you notice how many people are praying in our text today? Did you catch that detail? There was 120 of them. Do you remember that? There was 120 of them praying. Look what happens in Acts chapter two. Boy, you guys know this is gonna be good. When the day of Pentecost came, it's about 10 days after Jesus left, in case you wanted to know. They were all together in one place. What do you think they were doing? Thank you, you guys are listening. Yeah, they were praying. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing violent wind came from where? Come on. Came from heaven. Filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came and rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Man, can I get a witness to this? For 10 days, they're praying. For 10 days, they're waiting. For 10 days, they're just gathered and they're just delighting in Jesus. And then the day of Pentecost came. Guess what today is? Does anyone know? Your church, ca- it's Pentecost Sunday. Today's Pentecost Sunday. Today is 50 days after Easter. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And so guys, I want you to know this. It's after people prayed, the power came. Can I get an amen to that? It's after people prayed that the, that the spirit fell. Guys, I believe that sometimes when you pray, you're planting seeds that will one day be reaped when the spirit comes because he's responding to those prayers of the past. Guys, the power of today comes from the prayers of yesterday. So can we start praying today so that tomorrow we see his power We see his presence. We see Henderson saved. We see our city changed. We see the lost found because that's what happens, guys, when people pray. Peter goes out there and he starts preaching. 3,000 people come to Jesus that day. And there's 120 people praying. Well, I told you guys earlier this year that I had a dream, a goal, that we'd have 100 people praying before church at 8.20 in the morning. I know you guys are the 11 o'clock hour, so we'll have to see about that. But here's the thing, 120 people praying, or 100, 100 people praying. So then I read my Bible and I said, you know what? We need to raise that number to 120. <laughs> so I wanna throw this out to you. What if we had a 120 club here? What if that's what we had at the Church of Lake Mead? 120 people who said, you know what? I'm one of the 120 club. Now, maybe y'all are 120 club and we don't know how to count. That's fine. But the point is, is all of us say, hey, I'm going to be that kind of committed person here. I'm going to commit and covenant with my church to see God move, to do what he can only do. I want to be a part of the 120 who pray. I want you to, to, to consider saying, Lord, I'm going to be that praying presence. In my, in my life group, when we show up, I wanna be the one that says, guys, let's pray. And when the praying's done and you don't feel like really we, we broke through, we just stop saying, you know what? I think we need to pray a little longer. 
I think we were still kind of being a little shallow and, and artificial with each other. Let's just, let's just go one more time around until, until we're really being vulnerable with each other, until we're crying out to the Lord. Guys, I hope that our life group, at least this week, like we don't even do anything in the lesson. We just pray the whole time. I pray that next Sunday, we got 120 people at 820 and we're begging God to just do what only God can do because guys, I believe that God responds to the prayers of his people. So I got a question. Why not? Why not? I mean, what else are you doing on Sunday morning? Like come to church and pray. And if you're coming to the 11 o'clock, why don't we gather and have a 120 club meeting like at, at I don't know what that time would be, whatever, 20 minutes before the service. And we just gather in here and we just pray in here. And we do it between both services. Because guys, here's the thing. We got a new building that God's given us. That it's like, it's like a whole promised land that we need to conquer. And there are giants in that land. And we need to go out there and we need to say, Lord, we need to knock down those walls. And that's what we're doing here in Henderson. Man, would you just stand with me, church? I just want to invite us right now to pray right where you are. I want to just begin to open up the altar for us. We sing this great song. We're going to sing it again. An invitation to the altar, an invitation to pray. And I'm going to ask you right where you are just to get kind of real with God. And I want to, I want you to ask yourself, what is holding you back from intimacy with your brothers and sisters? What's holding you back from praying with one another? Is it shame? Is it a fear of rejection? Is it, a, is it just an embarrassment? I don't know what it might be. But can I ask everyone in this room to put your yes on the table to God, to say, God, right now, I give you my yes. I wanna be a part of this community. I wanna be a part of the prayers that will transform Henderson. I wanna be a part of that story. I wanna be a part of, the, of a community that is praying together, fasting together, seeking together. I wanna to be a kind of church that just is on the march, that takes our, our walk with Jesus so seriously because you are the king and the same king that ascended is gonna descend. One day you will return and we will be faithful until you come back, Jesus. And so I'm gonna invite us right now as a church, those who want to come forward and pray, Maybe you have somebody that's on your heart that you want to bring before God. Maybe you have a brother or sister that will join you and you guys can just pray about it. Maybe it's a trouble, a trouble in your marriage or, or in somebody else's marriage. Maybe it's a lost loved one who needs Jesus. But we are gonna pray for a few minutes here, church. And maybe you just pray with the person next to you, but I, wanna, I want our church to pray. We're letting it happen now. Just go ahead, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, move. The altar is open. Let's gather and let's pray. If you do not know Jesus, if you've never given your life to Jesus, right where you stand, I want you to pray a prayer out to God, a prayer that says, God, I love you. I need you. God, I'm not going to run anymore. I know I have sinned. I know I've done wrong. Jesus, I want you to forgive me. I trust you. You gave your life for me on the cross. I believe that. I ask Jesus into my life right now. If you've never trusted Jesus right where you are, you could cry out to God, ask him to save you and forgive you because of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection over death can be your hope.